This topic has been a long time coming, and I'm so excited to talk about it. Today, we're talking about American single malt whiskeys. What's up, guys? My name is Chris, and you are listening to the Whiskey Noobs Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest to walk us through American single malt whiskey. It's this new category. There's a lot going on. As you're going to see in this interview, it came up with a ton of questions for me. So, we needed a pro to break it down for us. Today, we've got Amanda Beckwith from the Virginia Distilling Company. She is not only their lead blender, but also their lead education manager. So she is the person who is adequately equipped to walk us through this. And as you'll see, she's so knowledgeable about this topic. It, she answers all my questions. At, at a certain point, I went full geek and I was like so intrigued by this new category of whiskey. And she was so patient and, and walked through all these questions with me. So if you want to know about American single malt whiskeys, if you like like to geek out, you don't even have to like to geek out. You just might be curious. You might have a passing curiosity. What is an American single malt? And if you want to hear a review of Virginia Distilling Company's Courage and Conviction American Single Malt, which I don't have sitting here right now, but you'll see it when I cut to that interview, then I think you're going to like this interview, so I won't delay any longer. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation that I got to have with Amanda Beckwith from Virginia Distillery Company. I do want to say... Thank you for joining. For those listening, I do have Amanda Beckwith with me from Virginia Distilling Company. Thank you for coming on, Amanda. Oh, happy to be here. Yes, and I would love to get into what it is that you do on a daily basis. So you're the lead blender um, at Virginia Distilling Company, and you also do handle some of the education, some of the stuff that we actually like to talk about on the show here as well. And I think that's going to be a really good uh, uh, mix there. But could you break down what you do like on a daily basis, kind of for each of those hats and each of those roles? Sure, yeah. From the blending side, once the whiskey gets into the barrel then it's my realm and I get to do planning. So I build relationships with different um, cooperages, bodegas around the world. I'm always thinking about products to develop for the future. And, you know, that takes years and years of prototyping and planning and after the trialing stage, making it into reality and scaling it up. But my day-to-day, -day, I do a lot of sensory analysis, cask selection, and that could be for anything from single barrel picks to massive blends where hundreds of casks are going to go into one product. And then the blending world, there's always reductions to oversee to get things to bottling strength, if that's the proof they're going to be bottled at. And a lot of making sure things are matching up and things are flowing well in, in those steps along the way. And then all the way to bottling when that whiskey is finally ready to enter the bottle, I'm kind of overseeing that final QC check. And then education wise, we are in this new world of American single malt coming front and center. And so I handle education, not only for our internal team, but for our distributor partners, for tasting agencies, for different events we do, I can go out into market and do classes or seminars all about the single malts around the world and American single malt in particular. So no two days look the same and I love it. I wouldn't have it any other way. Wow. Yeah. And especially I imagine no two days look the same right now with everything going on in American single malts and the whiskey world in the United States. It's very much an active time, I would say. Yes. <laughs> now, Leading into, into your role at Virginia Distilling Company, a question that I love to ask everybody I have on the show, where did your love of whiskey begin and how did that journey kind of take you to where you are now? I have to trace my love of whiskey back to travel. I always wanted to see the world and 
even as a kid, I realized the best way to experience a place was through the culture and the food and the drink. And I fell in love with flavor and aroma. And the memories that I was creating were often tied to the things I was drinking. And that might be, you know, at a young age, having really good eggnog with rum in it and going, okay, this is better with the rum than without. And it's not just because of the alcohol, it's nuttier and more complex. So I was a geeky kid who was always making these moments of I want to make something for you and I want to make cocktails for you and, and sharing those, those flavors. And when I realized single malt whiskey was the true embodiment of a sense of place, I got hooked and I've never looked back. Wow. Yeah. So then did you encounter single malt first as American single malt or did you encounter it as scotch and, and, and where did that connection get drawn then to American? Yeah. Scotch came first for me and then Japanese single malts. Oh, yes. And yeah, <laughs> which I've got a lot of hidden behind me. <laughs> okay. Along with some, some other great American single malts and Irish single malts. And yeah, I think it was this, oh, this can be made in more than just Scotland. And it can be made really well even in England. And when I heard about a few distilleries starting up in the States making them, they were a smaller scale for the most part. And then I found about Balcones and Westland and St. George, and I just was hooked. And I was really excited when I heard about a distillery opening in Virginia that wanted to do single malt. So I wrote a cover letter super fast into my resume and was like, hey, <laughs> I don't know if you need anything, but I'll volunteer on weekends. I'm really excited about what you're going to do. And they looked at my resume and said, oh, you've got tourism background. You've got hospitality knowledge and education. We're, we're interested in you for our visitor center. If you're available, we'd like to talk. And two weeks later, I gave my notice. <laughs> and three weeks later, I was already starting at the distillery building a tour and tasting program. Well, that's fantastic. So you you really started from the passion side of it. And you were yeah. like, this is what I want to do. And I'm going after it. Yeah. Over that eight is, years ago. <laughs> wow, that is fantastic. And so that that brings us to where you are now at Virginia Distilling Company. Um, and we are going to taste the whiskey here soon, uh, Courage and Conviction, or at least I'm going to run through a, a quick tasting of it. But before we do get to that, there's a lot of people listening <clears throat> who may not even realize really what American single malts are. Or maybe they're thinking, you can make a single malt in America? And, you know, it's, it's a very new category. So I'd like to run through really what an American single malt is and where it has come from. Um, I know there's a lot going on with legislation right now and some details that maybe we can get into. But I guess starting off with the most basic and probably the, the most complex answer for a question, what is an American single malt? Well, stripping it down to a single malt whiskey, single would refer to a single location. So it's something that really is going to convey the fact that it's distilled and aged at a single distillery in an American single malt in the United States. And we even bottle on site. So you're really getting that full story. And malts, barley. So the mash bill, 100% malted barley. We're founding members of the American Single Malt Commission. So we've been working together to really establish some core criteria. And so in addition to it being, you know, distilled and matured at a single American distillery, we're also requiring it to be 100% malted barley, distilled to no greater than 160 proof bottled, no less than 80 proof. The real question has been age. In Scotland, you have to age for three years in a day, minimum. And 
for the United States, it's so much larger. There's so much more scope. So nothing I release is younger than four. Um, I've been picking six and older whiskey this whole year. But for some place like Balcones in Texas, they have a very hot, dry maturation environment. So it wouldn't make a lot of sense to wait three plus years and have a bunch of empty barrels. So we're waiting to see what comes out of there. It'll be really interesting to see what's decided because we are going through a phase where the comment period is closed. The TTB is reviewing all the things that we put out there now and saying, okay, this makes sense and this doesn't. And then that last criteria, aged in an oak vessel, no larger than 700 liters. And that would be a pretty big barrel to age in. You could do some fun fun blending things, but uh, the largest barrels we age in are 500 liter sherry casks at the okay. Distillery Company way. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. That's a that's a good point about the climate there that I wanted to yeah. stop on because I didn't even think about it until you said yeah. it. You know, you're looking at Scotland and for those who aren't good at geography, because I'm horrendous at it, it's significantly smaller than the United States, smaller than most states. Um, so yeah, yeah that, the entire that nation. difference. Yeah, go yeah. ahead. Scotland has five established regions of Scotch production, and the whole nation can fit inside Virginia with a lot of room to spare. And we're <laughs> not the largest state here in Virginia by any stretch. So you can imagine, like, Colorado's doing one thing, and Seattle's doing something else, and it's, it's such a big, big realm of whiskey production. Exactly. And that climate is going to have a, a pretty drastic effect on how aging affects the whiskey, which, you know, we talk about that when you talk about the regions of Scotland, we talk about that with scotch, like, well, this is more coastal, this is more inland. And then you look at the US and it's just completely a, a huge span, huge variety of climates that you could be aging in. So that's a really good point about why that with the legislation might be kind of a difficult thing to get everybody to agree on. For sure. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm, I'm actually not super familiar with this, but as you mentioned, TTB is reviewing things right now. So as of right now, the American single malt tag, does it carry any regulation behind it? Or is it more so people trying to meet what they believe it's going to be so that they can just kind of continue to be American single malts? More of the latter, there are certain things that still fall under basic law. And you can always tag in other things like bottle and bond, or if it doesn't have an age statement on the label, you know, it's aged at least, you know, more than two years. So you, you've got that little safety net in there. But no, for an American single malt, we don't have anything completely set in stone yet. And there hasn't been a significant change or addition to American whiskey law since the 60s. So <laughs> this is a really big moment in American whiskey history. And we've been fighting really hard to get this recognition out there because we want to protect the people who love and drink the whiskey just as much as we want to protect ourselves and the quality of what we're making. Absolutely. And that's a good point, too, that it, it we haven't seen a change in so long. What would you say, in your opinion, is driving that? Like, why why is it that we're suddenly seeing this huge expanse into American single malt? I mean, that's a pretty big change considering the past 50 years in American whiskey. Yeah. In a sense, I think technology has finally cut up to where we can use barley in a really great way. And we kind of have beer to thank for that because... In the 1700s, nearly a quarter million Scots-Irish came into the colonies and settled a lot of them in the Blue Ridge Mountains. So they were the ones who were, you know, bringing this tradition of whiskey making with them. And they were making malt whiskey, typically in Scotland and Ireland. But the ground, the soil, and the growing conditions just weren't ideal for that single malt style. And so that's why you have the rise of 
bourbon with its corn or rye. And now the world has changed. Now we have the technology. Now we can figure out how to grow things. And barley's ideal because it has these enzymes you need for the conversion of starch to sugar to alcohol. And also the world is ahead of us. There are established single malt definitions for so many different countries. And I think we're finally going, oh, <laughs> it's not just Scotland we're playing against or Japan, but France has incredible single malts. Australia has incredible single malts. India, like we're, we're behind the times now and we have to catch up. Yeah, I think that's a that's a, something that I do see sometimes. And in being in Ohio, we, we don't have the greatest selection of foreign uh, whiskeys, but I do get asked about those different countries that you mentioned quite a bit. And I'm like, yeah, seems like everywhere else is doing it. I think you're right. Um, and so let's say that somebody listening, that they've had um, bourbon, they've had single malt scotch, they've had uh, single malt maybe from Ireland, uh, Japan. How... I know this is a super hard question to answer because I get asked it all the time about bourbon, but how would you say the flavor profiles or at least the spectrum of flavors that we see would compare to those different categories? Oh, I love that question. One thing that's really exciting about the American single malt world is we are not requiring new oak as the aging component. And that wasn't always the case for bourbon and rye, but the Cooper's Guild lobbied the U.S. government after World War II. Nobody wanted to buy barrels. We've moved on to plastics and stainless steel and glass production. And so it became law. And now we have a sustainability issue. Now we have something where it doesn't make sense for every American whiskey style to be aging a new charred oak. So for American single malts, you're going to see a lot of playfulness with cask use. And not just finishing, but primary maturation. So you'll see a lot of different distilleries, like in Scotland, aging in first fill bourbon barrels that have already spent several years of their life aging bourbon. And now the harsher tannins have been taken out. They're not going to be as oaky, but it's going to have that malt character or the fermentation esters coming through. So for that whiskey you've got in front of you, you're going to get apricot. You're going to get some banana bread. You're going to get a little bit of honeysuckle. And those notes, you know, they could have been masked if they'd been aging in New York barrels explicitly. So it's fun to see that. Um, a lot of people who drink scotch might immediately go to peat, which is not the case for every Scottish single malt, but or scotch blended malt, that's just something that a lot of people will have, like a Lagavulin, that's their first scotch, or Laphroaig, and they think everything's like that. And I think there are a handful of really incredible American single malts playing with peat or mesquite smoke. So definitely, if you want it, you can find it, same as in Scotland. But the majority of us really like to play around with casks for flavor more than smoking the, the barley or using peat in any form. And so you're gonna get more of that malt forward character. You're gonna have that barrel spice coming through in some form or another. And then if people wanna play with other like red wine cask types, you can get more fruity floral notes coming through for sure. There's a lot of room and a lot of range. So whatever your palate is, there's a single malt somewhere in the world for you. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's safe to say then we're going to see a lot with the types of barrels because of that barrel shortage you mentioned, which was something I wanted to get at. Not necessarily a shortage, but a limited resource that we are burning through with bourbon. Uh, we're going to see a lot with, with unique 
not just finishing for those listening who don't know this, not just taking it out of the initial barrel and putting it into a different barrel to get those flavors, but as you mentioned, the initial maturation of it, putting it directly into a used barrel. It's true. Yeah, and I, I think it'll be interesting to see how that has an impact on the the flavors of the American single malts compared to <clears throat> other types of single malts that you might see. Because I think there is a little bit of a misconception. Single malt, it, it's just made with barley, malted barley, so it's all going to taste just about the same. And <laughs> I know anybody who has drank single malt scotch from all the different regions would say that's definitely not true. Uh, but when we see this this maturation coming together with the single malt, we might see even more of an expanse, as you mentioned, minus that peat smoke and minus the the smoky factor of it, which would be very interesting to see. For sure. So I do want to get to Virginia Distilling Company specifically, because as you mentioned, some distillers are doing the the peatiness. Some distillers are having a totally different climate than you see in Virginia. So for Virginia Distilling Company, what would you say is really your your niche in the American single malt market, um, or what sorts of things are is, is Virginia Distilling Company specifically playing with in the American single malt world? I think one thing that really sets us apart is how dynamic our maturation climate is. We had two metal clad cask houses. We started out with a dunnage style built into a house like a hill. It was really fun to play with. At capacity, we could only fit six hundred casks in there, so we outgrew it very quickly. But having the metal-clad cask houses and having them so large, they each hold 6,000 casks, you can really get microclimates in there. And our barrels have seen highs of 108, lows of negative 4 Fahrenheit. We've seen 40 to 60-degree variances within 24 hours. So there's a lot of interaction between whiskey and barrel stave, and that means that we're getting color and flavor developing very naturally, very quickly. We've never used caramel coloring on our whiskey. We don't use petite barrels. The smallest barrels we age in are those first fill bourbon casks, and we go up from there. So it's really uh, a climate that we let the whiskey be influenced by. And then also the casks, they really are our other ingredient. We've got water, yeast, barley, and barrels. And we get to be really creative with telling a story and developing a lot of rich layers of flavor there. Yeah. And so that's a great segue into what specifically I'm drinking now. And I do want to talk about other things coming from Virginia Distilling Company. But as for this, this courage and conviction, um, the age of it, the the finish, I think you've already kind of got at those, but just to put it all out there for everybody listening who doesn't know, um, could you give us just a quick bio on this bottle? Sure. That's our signature malt. So that is like the flagship of all of our Courage and Conviction line. And we started out releasing it in 2020 and we've been aging it up a little bit since then. So it's averaging about five years as the youngest component for what's out in the bottle now. And we age in Firstville Bourbon, sherry casks from Spain and these beautiful European red wine casks that go through a shaved toast char process. And those are my favorite casks to play with right now. And so all those different casks get blended together, slowly reduced down to 92 proof and then bottled. And so what you have right there, we got 96 points from Wine Enthusiast on that the month it came out and it just won London Spirits Competition Whiskey of the Year. So it's a great, really layered, nuanced whiskey. It's not going to be an aggressive smack in the face, but it will open up for hours. You'll get more and more out of it and it pairs really well with food. 
Yes, I've only had it a couple of times so far in preparation for this episode, but and I'll walk through a full tasting of it for those listening. Um, but yes, it it really you mentioned earlier, and I wanted to make sure I mentioned it. You mentioned apricot, and I went straight to the stone fruits, the apricot, the peach. I mean, when I tasted it, I was like, wow, and it comes through very well. We'll talk about kind of the balance that it has. Um, but yeah, I think that really, it shows well. And is that, and I could be wrong with this, but is that when you say lead blender, is that part of what you look at is how you're bringing those different barrels together and making sure you're getting a consistent flavor profile amongst all of them? Yes. I think you just said one of the keywords, consistency. And then the other one is complexity for me. I don't want to be bored by whiskey and I don't want to have one sip and think, okay, that's all there is to it. I want to be surprised and I want to go deeper and richer. So this is one where it might not be until your fourth or fifth sip that you start to get that dry cocoa and then maybe having it sit out and on my desk for an hour, I'll be like, there's that milk chocolate ganache. There's the raspberry and violet. So you have to work for it a little bit or let it open up, maybe add a drop of water, but it's never going to bore you. And it's going to have this story to tell from beginning to end. It's not just going to be one page. Yeah. And I think, too, I've had some American single malts, which I also enjoyed, but they they had almost more, and maybe this is because it's such a young industry, but they almost gave me more of a grain alcohol type of flavor where it was coming through as that, that real alcohol harshness, I guess I would say. But this I've noticed... I get that strong fruitiness, and in a weird way, I also get it. You can taste that sherry. You can taste that that slightly bitter. This is a bad note, but it's what I always say. It reminds me <clears throat> of like a Swiss cheese or like something bitter like that, <laughs> sometimes something that's very sherried. But with this bottle, I'm getting like a nice balance of that, um, and I'm excited to see as we sit here and we talk about it how it it continues to open up a little bit. But have you seen that? And, and maybe you haven't, but just in in other American single malts, that note that I'm talking about where they get a little bit of a grain alcohol to them. Yeah, there's two things that I immediately thought of when you said that. The first is so much single malt scotch is bottled at 80 proof. And Americans, we tend to have a, a palate for something a little higher and more aggressive or alcohol forward. So you'll often see a higher ABV, which can contribute to that aggressiveness. But then a lot of those whiskeys could potentially be younger. Um, they could be aging in, in new oak. So it could be a little bit more there. And, you know, there, there are lots of things that you can kind of try to do to combat that grainy aggressiveness. Um, those might be really great for some cocktails, though, with that that backbone right there. So, yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. I do. Um, there are some that I've had that they have that and they have like a different flavor going on. And so I have enjoyed them. Um, but I, I was curious as to your your insight on that. So I appreciate that. Um and, and putting in cocktails. That's also a very good point. I also want to touch on the proof that you mentioned. You're, you're bringing up a lot of things. As I mentioned, this is new for me. And you're bringing up a lot that just gets my gears turning. Um, is that another thing in the United States you think we're going to see a lot of is really cranking up the proof compared to what you most often see in Scotland and in Ireland? I do. I mean, about a third of what's hidden on the corners of my shelf are single casks. And those are often at cast strength. I think Americans really like to get their hands on those. And I do picks. And I want people to experience them the way that I am up in the cast cast. So I will have them bottled at or very, very close to natural cast strength. I think another thing, too, is when 
when you have something bottled at 80 proof, there's a big chance it might have been chill filtered. There is a chance if it's a scotch, it might have had caramel coloring as well. And the caramel coloring is fine, whatever. But the chill filtering can strip away mouthfeel. It can strip away some of those fatty long chain acids that I love. Um, and I think even some of the flavor. And so with that higher proof, we're giving ourselves room to play. And if people do want to have their whiskey on the rocks, if they do want to add a couple drops of water, I know that the whiskey I'm making will stand up really well to that. It's at that proof where it's still going to give you room to play. And it's really disappointing to me to get served whiskey on the rocks when I didn't ask for it and to see it like become really flabby and lackluster. And yeah, <laughs> I don't want that happening to anybody when it comes to my whiskey. Yeah. And you bring up the chill filtering, which I don't know if we've we've mentioned on this show before. Um, but how does that relate to proof specifically? Because I know you got at it there for a minute, but for those who don't know at home. Yeah. So there are long chain fatty acids that can fall out of solution in certain types of whiskey. Usually when it's lower proof, it's more likely to happen and it can look like a little rope or something in, in a bottle. And like there's nothing wrong with that. You can shake it up. You're, you're good to go. But there is a, a magic point, a, a magic proof point. And if you go below that, especially as low as 80%, then that's really going to cause that to happen. And so by doing a chill filtration, you know, you're, you're removing that. But the oily congeners are beautiful. And the reason people think something has to look crystal clear is probably because they were drinking a lot of vodka in the eighties and nineties, and they're used to something really pristine and clear looking. Um, but for people who know, I mean, the wine drinkers, we call them flavor crystals. <laughs> and some of us whiskey drinkers call it that too. So we don't have a problem with it. And uh, it's interesting to see the trends come and go and chill filtration has really um, got its claws in for a while. Yeah, and I think we are starting to see that, though, as you mentioned. We're starting to see non-chill filtering becoming very advertised, very much on the labels. Uh, and what can you expect different in the sipping experience than when you have when you don't have that chill filtering? The mouthfeel, first off, can be richer. It can be more oily and <clears throat> decadent. And, yeah, you're going to have more even coating your palate all the way through to the flavor profile, there's just a depth that can be lacking when you've stripped out some of those things. So it's subtle, but when you know, you know. Yeah. So that thing that we might call like the roundness or the body of it really starts to pull away when you have a chill filter then. Often. Yeah. And I also want to mention the, the, the tannic note of it. If we were using first or if we were using new oak that hadn't been used before, and this is just a point of curiosity, you don't have to have any scientific backing for this, but you might. <laughs> um, do you think in your opinion, you know, using the brand new barrels for bourbon versus using them for a single malt whiskey, would we see more tannin with the single malt? Would it overpower the barley a bit more? Or what do you think you see um, in that regard? So for a mash bill, say you've got rye, it's going to be more peppery. It's going to have more spice to it than the barley. It's definitely going to be able to dominate and play up against that new oak in a better way. Another factor, though, could be the strength at the barrel entry proof. So the, the legal limit is 62.5. That's the highest ABV a new make spirit can enter a barrel. If you add more water, it's going to have different interactions with the barrel, different lactones can come out. All of these things can be um, influential. 
in the things that you're pulling out of a barrel stave and how it's going to stay in the whiskey itself. So there, there are different levers you can pull. And if you want to kind of combat the aggressive new oak, you could totally make some beautiful single malts aged in new oak. It's totally doable. Just, you know, think about some of those levers you might want to pull and aging time or finishing can also come into that as well. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. That was just a personal question that I had. Cause I thought when you said that, I thought that's a very good point because, you know, they always mention the corn allows some of the sweetness to come through. And then as you mentioned, the rye really stands up against that tannin a little bit. So, um, I was a little curious as to your input on that. So now I am, I have been, I've begun tasting this, this courage and conviction and I want to run through the the kind of the nose, the palate, and the finish. And, of course, I will let you take over because I think you'll know more about it than I could ever mention in the next 10 minutes of tasting it. Um, but walk me through the nose, palate, and, and finish of this and what people can expect at home when they're trying it. Sure. So we've already mentioned that that cling fruit, which I love. And that is something when I'm in the distillery walking through our fermentation tanks, I get that right there. We use two different strains of yeast. So we really do focus on developing those beautiful tropical esters. So maybe you'll get a little bit of pineapple in there too. Um, I definitely get some baked apple. There's a butterscotch note that comes through. And then on the palate, that butterscotch becomes a little bit more of a caramel brown sugar maple. And that melds into the citrus blood orange note that I really love. And then there's that pecan walnut note. And I love that savory ginger spice starts to kick in right there. And yeah, there's a layer of red fruit. It's definitely going to give you more of that cocoa over time, almost like a mocha. And yeah, it's something that if I was going to pair it with food, charcuterie, any sort of like shrimp and grits, something where it's not going to be one note, but it's going to really play and give you that long finish for a long time. Wow. Um, I know confirmation bias is a thing, but as you walk through that, I'm like, I totally, I see it. And I will say, I tasted this before the podcast to eliminate some bias. And and I too, I totally agree. It, it plays at the, fr- like the candied fruit, the fruitiness and the caramelization of those sugars. The the little bit of spice that keeps it interesting and like this, this round welcoming fruitiness um, that I really enjoy. Tropical is a great descriptor, I think, as well. Especially on that nose, you see a little bit more of that. For those listening, wondering, maybe you didn't buy it yet. Maybe you're wondering what you can expect. I think I think you hit the nail right on the head um, with the, the interplay between the fruitiness and then those more caramel bakery type of notes that you get. Um, and I think, is it safe to say that some of that bakery type note comes from the, the barrel or from the bourbon casks? Or would, would you say, where, where are we seeing these different things come from? Yeah, I definitely have talked about puff pastries before (laughs) with a couple of the the cask picks. I think there is a little bit of that strudel note that I kind of tie into the fruit from fermentation. But a lot of it, the sherry casks, they really bring a lot of those pastry notes into play, which I adore. And the nuttiness too. Like we use a bit of Oloroso sherry and... Man, there's like a hazelnut note that comes through in a really cool way that I adore. Um, we use Fino and we use PX Sherry as well. So you get a lot of different styles coming in to give that little bit of complexity there, which, I mean, 
when you have all those sweet fruity notes, you could go in one direction, but because of, you know, the whiskey itself, you've got that richer, deeper barrel spice, long ginger finish. So it can balance everything out really well. Wow. So between the different variations of, of sherry, different variations of bourbon, and I don't know if all the red wine casks are the same or not, how many different variations of casks are you bringing together when you're blending this? So I've got the three core types, the the first fill bourbon, the sherry, and those cuvee. But yeah, breaking it out, the fino olo and PX, and occasionally some true Spanish oak sherry. That's, you know, a lot of different ingredients to play with there when it comes to barrels. And then the, the cuvee cask or those European red wine, I get them from Portugal, I get them from France, and I get them from Spain. And so those are different bodegas with different styles and it might be, Oh, Grenache here and Garnacha here, but you know, they have their own spin on it to an extent. So there, there's a lot of variance and I played around with different levels of toast and char. So you can really learn a lot over time. But for the first couple of years, I was just trying to take notes like a crazy person going, okay, I've got a little microclimate here. I'm expecting this, but oh, this was a level two char. This was level one. And this was just a heavy toast. So <laughs> there's a lot that I, I enjoy being able to pull from and it makes it fun, but it also means I have my work cut out for me every time to achieve consistency. Yeah. And is that your goal, at least with the core product? Is every batch meant to taste almost the same or is there kind of a fluctuation intentional? I mean, I always want everything to get better year over year. So that's the goal. But I have a system where I never completely deplete from one of my blending tanks. So that way I'm able to do a prototype blend, match it up really well, and then blend it all in together. So it's almost like a Solera system. And that way nobody's ever going to be surprised and be like, where did this come from? They know the flavor points. They know the flavor profile. There is a great deal of consistency that shouldn't ever be shaken up. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And then you can kind of almost just refine as you go, exactly. I guess. And so, improve. <laughs> and improve. Absolutely. Now, with this being the core offering, uh, where would you say this lands in comparison to some of the other major offerings from Virginia Distilling Company? Or if somebody's like, that sounds interesting, but it's not what I'm looking for. What other variations do you offer? Yeah, we've got five core whiskeys out. We've got that signature malt, and then we have like a dissection of those three different cast types. So we have one American single malt aged only in first fill bourbon, one aged only in those different sherry cast types blended together, and then one aged only in those cuvee red wine casks. And so you can kind of play blender yourself if you wanted and see. I kind of describe it as having the different parts of a cake. If you really just love that frosting or the ganache, go to town. But if you want the cake itself, here you go. Um, and then the other, the fifth one is called Double Cask Reserve. And it's a little higher in ABV. We jumped up to 48% ABV. It's aged a little older. And the double casks are the first fill bourbon and these <clears throat> cuvee red wines blended together, roughly 55, 45%. So it's um, what my colleagues in the distillery call the milk and cookies whiskey. <laughs> Best of both worlds. Wow. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's I like the uh, the dissection of it as well. Trying to put that together, I think that's kind of a fun. That's a it's it's fun for somebody like me and for somebody newer. That's actually useful to really see how the different casks are are having those different effects on the whiskey. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. I'm going to have to dive into those, I think, and uh, try to see what I can see that comes from this one or what in this comes from those. It's a fun exercise for sure. Yes. So moving forward with that lineup, is there anything new coming from Virginia Distilling Company or anything that you want to mention <clears throat> that you see happening in the future? Yeah. Uh, throughout the year, we do special single barrel picks. And so every one of our large markets will get a handful and they are bottled at cast strength. And when they're gone, they're gone forever. But it's really fun because throughout the year, I'll be finding these beautiful honey barrels and thinking, all right, I think this can stand alone. And then every year I'm rolling out a small like blender select project. So we're calling it visionary. And next year it will be called um, visionary Spanish Oak. So it will be a little bit older. Um, It's kind of one of those, think of a leather armchair and a library full of beautiful hardbound books and uh, maybe a dog curled up by a fireplace and and you're set to drink this one. (laughs) And, um, it's really unique because Quercus Robur is a rare cask type to get your hands on. And we were really happy to get these casks. And I've been kind of keeping an eye on them for almost eight years now. So really happy to be rolling that out next, probably spring or early, early summer. Okay. So we're looking at quarter one, quarter two of 2024 then yep. for, for that release. That's very exciting. Um, Diving, I, I want to mention the the single barrel program you mentioned because I just realized I don't think I've ever got to ask someone who does this for a living this question that everybody loves to ask me, and that is, you're picking out those honey barrels and you're like these are these are really something special. I want to release these as a single barrel. People love to ask me, how do you make sure you're still getting the good product in the main lineup if you're pulling honey barrels? And I think I know the answer, but I'll leave it to the pro here and see yes. what you have. That's a really good question. So I have a grading system and the base of it is ABC. And so every barrel gets assigned either C, B, or A. And C is not worse than A or B. C is just foundational. So for a first fill bourbon cask, this would be a single malt that maybe has that vanilla, butterscotch, and maybe a little bit of green apple. A B is going to be a little bit more unique and balanced out. Perhaps it would have cedar coming through in a really unique way. And then an A would be really unique. If you're creating a symphony, it's your piccolo. It's like, oh, okay. All I'm getting from you is honey nut Cheerios. All right, then you're great, but a little bit goes a long way. So I see them all fitting together and I probably want a whole lot more of the C cask than the A or the B. So there's this idea of what comes together well and what builds to be best as part of the blend. So I never see one barrel and think, oh, this is better than all the others. Instead, I think this is where you belong. And so I'm looking and seeing, okay, this is going to fit here. It's like building a puzzle. And sometimes the single barrels are the ones that don't fit anywhere. They're just really unique and cool on their own. And I might think, okay, you don't belong here. Somebody's going to appreciate you because you're coming across with this marzipan or strawberry violet note. It's really jammy and you'd be blended out. And I don't have a bunch of other, you know, casks that would help you sing right now. So I'm going to tuck you to the side. And when you really feel developed, I might make you a single barrel. 
Okay. And so it's almost like, <clears throat> I don't want to just blend this away. So exactly. So that makes a lot of sense that I've, I've answered similarly to that, but it's great to get it from the horse's mouth because that's not my job. So I, I don't know for <laughs> certain how that's done. And it could be different somewhere else, but that's, that's my world. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. So that is basically all the thing I, I, I could sit and talk all day. I mean, this conversation has been a hydra. Every time I have you answer a question, I'm like, that is a great point. I need to, I need to ask about this. But that does cover the core things that I wanted to cover. Is there anything specific that, that you feel you wanted to mention about Virginia distilling or American single malts? And then if not, I do have one more question to round things out. I mean, I'm all yours for one more question. I would say... Um, just a thank you for shining a light on American single malt. I think a lot of people feel very comfortable talking about bourbon or maybe single malt scotch, but being able to say, hey, there's a whole world out there to explore. Um, we have an ASM Academy at Virginia Distillery Company, so you can go online and take it if you want. You can just kind of Google ASM Academy or look on our website and you'll find it. But we're all about talking about other great single malt producers across the nation. So don't just try us. Check out the other ones out there because they're doing phenomenal work too. That's fantastic. I myself will definitely take that. I didn't I didn't know that was a thing. So I appreciate you letting me know yeah, about that. I'll send you a link. <laughs> yes, absolutely do that. And so speaking of the ASM Academy, speaking of the other distillers out there, if you had to just give a, one more short summary about where you see American single malts going over the next few years, the things that are really exciting you about this industry, what would you say? I would say the idea of creativity and flavor development is really exciting right now. And I think people are more and more engaged with knowing where something comes from and how it's made. And single malt is such a great story to tell because not only are you experiencing a single grain, <laughs> you're experiencing the growth of it from the very beginning. And so I would say if you can go out and start visiting single malt distilleries and engaging. These are some of the friendliest, most passionate people you'll ever meet. And they would love to talk to you and showcase what they're working on and the, the creativity behind the flavors they're, they're creating, whether it's different e-styles or different still shapes or, of course, different barrels. Yeah, I think that's a great call to action there for everybody at home is, is find the one nearest you and go check it out because – we're going into uncharted territory, and it's an exciting time for, for that. It's, it's a very exciting time to experience that. Well, Amanda, you have been a wealth of knowledge. I can't thank you enough. Um, you're welcome back anytime, and I'm sure as I gather more questions and as we see more happening in this industry, I'd love to have you back on and to discuss it a little bit more. Uh, maybe when that, that release comes out next year, we can talk about that and how it's changing things up a little bit as well. But thank you very much uh, for coming on, and, and please enjoy the rest of your night. Oh, you too. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you guys for listening to another episode of Whiskey Noobs. If you need more Whiskey Noobs content in your life, make sure you check out our Patreon page in the show notes. And if you like the show, please make sure to leave a five-star rating or review. It only takes a couple of minutes, and they're way more helpful than people realize. If you want to do tastings alongside the show, make sure you join the email list by sending an email to whiskeynoobspodcast at gmail.com with a subject line that says email list. You'll receive monthly emails with a list of the whiskeys that will be featured throughout the month so that you can buy them ahead 
ahead of time. You can also find more Whiskey Noobs content on Instagram at Whiskey underscore Noobs and on TikTok at Whiskey Noobs Podcast. Once again, thank you guys for listening. The Whiskey Noobs Podcast does not support underage or otherwise irresponsible consumption of alcohol.